Well, the sixth day of creation is a busy one for God. It actually starts a paragraph before Pastor Joyner began to read. It starts with God creating all the land creatures, cattle and creeping things and wild animals. That takes up the first half of the day, or at least the first paragraph about the day. And then God treasures up the bright design of creatures made in the divine image. Let us make humankind in our image. According to our likeness, God proposes. Who is the us God is addressing? Well, some would say the Holy Trinity. Of course, that's not exactly a Jewish doctrine when this ancient text was written. But as Christians, affirming that human beings are made in the image of a Trinitarian God is deeply important. So hold on to that idea because we will come back to it. And then, like each day of creation, day six ends with God seeing and pronouncing that all is good. All the creatures, all the human beings. Most scholars would agree that the terms image and likeness uh, form a parallel construct meaning they, they, they mean the same thing. But I would like to recover a very old distinction between image and likeness that was drawn by the early Greek fathers of the church, a distinction that is still honored in the Eastern Orthodox churches. God's image is often interpreted uh, as certain powers, like reason and free will, responsibility, creativity, love. According to the early church fathers Irenaeus and Origen, the image of God is the created potential of each person to share with God in those kinds of powers. Whereas the divine likeness shows the extent to which each person realizes the potential. So all human beings are endowed with the image of God. That is a gift that cannot be destroyed. This indelible potential is what gives each person incalculable worth in God's eyes and ought, therefore, to affect how we see one another. But the likeness to God is not a given. It is shaped by our choices, our attitudes, our inclinations. And so it is deeply flawed by the human condition of alienation from God. Either by grace we slowly fulfill the potential of the divine image implanted within us 
Or by sin, we continue to obscure and waste our deepest gift. Now, what I appreciate about this distinction is that it offers a frame for our spiritual journey. In the words of one Eastern theologian, the image is that which we possess from the beginning and which enables us to set out in the first place upon the spiritual way. The likeness is that which we hope to attain at our journey's end. If that is the frame, the picture inside is how we live our life in Christ over time. Jesus is the Alpha and Omega of the journey, but also the way we get from here to there. In him, there is no separation between image and likeness. The two are synonymous, just as they were intended to be by the, by the author of Genesis 1. As we look to Jesus and learn from his life, seeking guidance through the Spirit, we slowly begin to move from that obscured image deep within us to a true likeness of the divine life that Jesus shows us. Which brings us to the reading in Philippians 2. Here, the Apostle Paul enjoins us to let the mind of Christ transform and redirect our small-mindedness. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, be of the same mind, having the same love. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus who emptied himself. This is a beautiful passage. But maybe we could also say that Paul has stopped preaching and started meddling. Ours is not the only socio-political climate in human history where the message of Philippians 2 seems to land on deaf ears. The love and humility of Christ stand in direct opposition to the deceitful power ploys that mar our human communities, not only at high levels of government or commerce, but sometimes even in our beloved churches. None of us is immune. We might as well admit that attaining the mind of Christ poses a huge challenge to all of us, not just to those whose rhetoric 
expresses pride and division so forcefully. It reminds me of the story of a young priest just out of seminary who was very nervous about officiating at his first Eucharist. And he was afraid that if he didn't get all his words right, the congregation would not know how to respond. When his first few words produced a dead sound, panic set in. He, he tapped the microphone and said, there's something wrong with this microphone. And the whole congregation intoned with one voice, and also with you. <laughs> there is something wrong with you and also with me. We are out of touch with the truth of who we are, out of tune with the harmony of the spheres. We are not like the divine image deep in the recesses of our own souls. We need so much to be transformed. And the better angels of our nature yearn for that transformation. But the lesser angels resist change. Change is scary. The path to maturity in Christ looks suspiciously like a cross. It involves dying to the little self we know so well and rising to patterns of thought and behavior in which we might have trouble recognizing ourselves. So, I mean, what if I stopped getting angry with the driver in front of me who's going 20 miles an hour in a 20-mile-an-hour zone? <laughs> uh, what if I had the courage to confront in a loving, non-defensive way the manipulative behavior of my boss, my coworker, my spouse, my friend. What would change if I really believed that my personal value did not depend on what I earn or achieve? If I shared my true feelings or stopped disguising my ignorance, would I still be acceptable? Would I lose my personality? If I change too much, how will that affect all the relationships built on the way I am now? And is that a price I am willing to pay to be transformed in Christ? You know, these are very real questions in us, although most of them operate quite subconsciously. Years ago, my friend Gordon wrote about a dream he had on a centering prayer retreat with Thomas Keating, who is one of the great founders of the centering prayer movement. And 
In his dream, a Keating-like figure was messing around in the engine of Gordon's car, which made him really mad. Of course, when he woke up and recognized the meaning of the dream, he just started laughing. God was rearranging some of Gordon's psychological structure the engine that drove his thought and behavior. And Gordon felt subconsciously threatened by those changes. So his anxiety surfaced through a dream. Welcome to the human journey from image to likeness. Preaching the gospel to ordinary people of his day, Jesus would cry out, Repent and believe the good news. I think most of you know that the Greek word we translate as repent is metanoia. Meta means above or beyond, noia has to do with the mind. So the word quite literally means higher mind. Jesus is saying get a higher, wider, larger perspective. Move beyond the small confines of your ego-centered mind and heart. Instead, believe the good news which is God's enormous, incomprehensible love for this whole world and for every human being in it, no matter how sinful, alienated, or off-target a person's behavior may be. Indeed, it is precisely sinners, those whose minds and hearts are sick, who need the healing grace of the great physician, who need God's chesed, loving kindness. This is the higher perspective, the changed view of metanoia. Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. God has created us in the divine image and loves us with a tenacity and a tenderness greater than any mother with child. But no one of us is more highly valued than another in God's eyes. So we cannot esteem ourselves more highly than others. Nor should we devalue ourselves, imagining that we are not lovable. These errors are simply two sides of the coin of false identity. Realistic humility is a cure for both the over-inflated and the under-inflated ego. 
But to be authentically humble is to love all equally, profoundly, and freely as God loves. Let me offer a few homely stories uh, of invitation to metanoia from my own recent life. My husband and I cared for his mother in our home for the final 11 years of her long life. She was not an easy person to connect with. Her deafness was relational as well as physical. She stiffened when we embraced her and blew her kisses safely from across the room. She lived at life's surface, saw things in black and white, was prejudiced and judgmental. At some point, I came to see that she needed physical gestures of love, the very kind she herself resisted offering. So I began to plant an evening kiss on her cheek or to give her a foot rub. And she responded like a love-starved child, eagerly awaiting physical touch. If it appeared that I might be about to forget to give her that evening kiss, she would tap her cheek reminds me. I prayed to see the face of Christ in her. Christ in his distressing guise, as Mother Teresa of Calcutta used to put it. This was not easy for me. But at moments, light broke through the crust of my ordinary perception, and I caught glimpses of her perseverance, her patience, her courage, faith, and simple humor, transcending the pain and the fatigue of her decline. Looking back, I realize what could be more beautiful than to see the face of our Lord shining through the flesh and bone of of another person, weak and wounded, as we all are. What could be better than catching even a, a sideways glance of God's image in the least likely of people. A second invitation to metanoia. When pondering what it means to inhabit the mind of Christ, 
I'm so aware of the immense challenge of this moment in our nation's history. I have been deeply disturbed and disheartened by the direction our current administration seems to be taking this country. Many ideas and actions now being promoted seem profoundly antithetical to the gospel of Jesus. But at a spiritual level, it seems to me, our nation has a chance to see clearly our collective shadow. In-depth psychology, the shadow is what we don't see within ourselves and don't want to see. Parts of our personality we are ashamed of and prefer to disown. It is far easier to see negative aspects of our own psyche in people who exhibit those traits more visibly. So as we project our shadows onto those people, we feel justified in condemning them. Jesus has something to say about removing the log in our own eye so we can see clearly enough to remove the splinter from someone else's eye. I think it is accurate to say that the core of our national shadow is racism, which has been called America's original sin and applies as much to Native Indian as to black and brown Americans. Playing into this shadow are various ways of seeing ourselves separate, fueled by fear, Fear of job loss, fear of immigrants, of other religions, of violence, of changing demographics and changing economics. In this charged atmosphere, the challenge for me is to pay attention to my own shadow. While following the news, as I become reactive, fearful, or angry, I am mirroring our collective shadow. Even if my responses seem natural or justified, at a deeper level, I am adding to the polarizing brew of reactivity that seems to be driving our national conversation, if you can call it a conversation. But this has become my new spiritual practice, observing my own reactivity and what it tells me about my part in our larger national shadow. I need metanoia, that higher mind of Christ. 
I need to remember that every human being holds the precious potential of God's image and that we are all at different places on our journey toward realizing the likeness of God's image. I need to cling to the humble love of Christ who shows us the fullness of God's image so that I can participate, I can embody in some way the good news of God's love for all, all, all. Let me invite you back to the idea that we're created in the image of a Trinitarian God. What is the nature of the Trinity in whose image we are made? Perhaps some of you have seen the very famous uh, Rubloff icon of the Holy Trinity, painted some 600 years ago, 1411. Titled The Hospitality of Abraham, it depicts the three angels who visit Abraham and Sarah, and the angels are seated around a table and a lovely kind of circular movement is expressed in their graceful posture toward each other. There is a humble, loving regard marking each face. And at the table center is a chalice, the symbol of self-sacrificing love embraced within that circle. Here is a beautiful depiction of the divine image that we are invited, called to participate in. The compassionate divine humility and other-focused regard each person of the Trinity has for the other. We are created to reflect this, to mirror this, Henry Nouwen, musing on this icon, writes, The more we look at this image with the eyes of faith, the more we come to experience a gentle invitation to participate in the intimate conversation taking place among these three. And we come to see that all engagements in this world bear fruit only when they take place within this divine circle, the house of perfect love. By the guiding grace of the Spirit, may we find our way into this circle of love. And God bless your continued journey in Christ from image to likeness.